Morning. Occasionally, you may have heard somebody say over the years at some point in time, or perhaps you were even tempted yourself to say, I didn't get much out of worship this morning. Or, I really didn't get much out of church. Well, this morning, some very special, precious things that I want you to get out of being here. I want you to take home an incredibly beautiful blessing this morning. And so we're going to do things a little bit different. I'm going to say something that I would seldom ever say. I'm going to ask you to close your Bibles. I'm going to read to you directly from one of the four Gospels, but I'm going to be reading excerpts. And rather than tell you every time what verse I'm going to, it'd be better if you just listened. I want you this morning, in order to get the point of the sermon and to take home that beautiful blessing, I need for you to be able to take yourself as much as you can out of this morning here and try to place yourself in the situation I'm going to read about. I want you to try in your mind's eye as much as you can to focus on being in the place I'm going to read about. I want you to go there in your mind. And so I want you to just listen. Forget about lunch. Forget about where you're headed afterward. Please, this morning, just try to focus as we begin on the reading and putting yourself there in your mind. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hands on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He spoke in blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered and said, He's deserving of death. And they spat on his face. And they beat him 
And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who's the one who struck you? When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. You getting this in your mind's eye? Put yourself there. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It's as you say. While he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear? And Jesus just standing there silent. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that Pilate marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that they had handed Jesus over because of envy. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy. That's a strong word. Destroy? And destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said, Well, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. We'll take responsibility, was the implication. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole garrison around him. Put yourself there. Took him into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around this man who's already been scourged. Sorry, I digress. And they stripped him. And they put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a, and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! You can almost sense the smirk. Then they spat on him. You ever been spat on? Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, 
him they compelled to bear his cross. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they crucified him. I want to stop there for just a minute. And I want you to, in your own mind's eye, to see this man coming in this procession, so weak he can't carry his own cross, so bloody you probably wouldn't recognize him even if you'd known him. And I want you to consider when they, when they laid him down on that cross, the sound of that hammer hitting those pegs. I want you to put yourself there. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. They put up a sign, or they put up over his head, the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him. One on his right and the other on the left. And those who passed by, those who walked by there that Friday morning, those who walked by that very public place where he was being crucified, those who walked by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. We'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now, if he'll have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Brother Dan Jenkins of the Palm Beach Lakes Church of Christ in West Palm Beach, Florida, recently had an article up on Church of Christ articles, and it was called Truths at the Cross. And in his introduction, he said this, The theme for this year has been at his cross. The emphasis for this month is that each of us, and each of us as well, finds truth at the cross. As you stand at the foot of the cross, what great truths come into your heart? Sometimes our greatest understanding of truth comes in the midst of great trauma. And then, Brother Jenkins goes on to list four great truths we learn as we stand at the foot of the cross. That's why 
the lengthy reading, I want you in your mind's eye to be standing at the foot of the cross that morning. Brother Jenkins' first point that he said that we learn at the foot of the cross, I learned the truth about myself. There were so many who were impacted by his death, and each had his own reason for being there that morning. I wonder if I would have stood beside those who mocked him. Consider. You're in a crowd. You're in a hostile crowd. Jesus is up there bleeding out on the cross. And all around you there are people that are shouting, crucify him. There's religious leaders. There's political leaders. There's everyday folks. There's people going by. And they're all screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Would you have stood beside them that morning? Would you have thought they're just crucifying another criminal? If you knew who Jesus was, what would you have said to those all around you? I wonder if I would have stood beside those who mocked him. Would I be among those who walked by and kept going with little interest in what was happening? There are so many people today that are walking by worship services occurring all over this country with no thought whatsoever for the Christ who was crucified for them. He goes on to say, Would I have stood beside his mother and sought to comfort her? A mother's tears? For her son up there on that cross? Or would I not have been there at all like his disciples who fled from the garden? Brother Jenkins says the answer to these questions might be discovered by seeing what emotions I have during the meditation I do when I commune with him around the table. And he's absolutely right. I can't literally physically be back there turn back time and go back to that garden, but the answer to these questions, what would I do, can be seen reflected in my meditations as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What's going through my mind? Am I so busy thinking about other things that I'm like those people that are too busy walking by to even notice what's going on? Is my heart broken because of the blood he shed and the tears that were there that day for his loss? Or not? I would like to similarly suggest that not only can those questions be answered about what would I be doing if I were there that morning as we gather about the table, but I would like to suggest similarly that the answers to those questions might also be made clearer as we each personally consider what we do is we walk in the shadow of the cross and enjoy its blessings every day. The answer to those questions might be reflected in our daily walk. What do we do, for instance, when we're in a crowd today? We're surrounded by people today and they either mock or ridicule or make fun of Christ or his church, or his standards of morality and righteousness. Do we just stand silently by in that crowd that is mocking him? As so many quite probably did in that day, a 
afraid to speak up and defend him who was bleeding out in the dirt and the dust and the blood and the tears on Calvary that morning. Because what I do in the crowds I'm actually in that mock him today is probably a pretty good indicator of what I would have done had I been there that morning. Or worse yet, like Peter, when the going got rough and the crowd got hostile, would I even deny that I knew Jesus? Peter did it three times. I'm reminded here of Jesus' words in Luke 9, verses 23 through 26. He said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it for man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I'm sorry, if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. Think for a moment. What did Jesus say in that passage? He simply said this. If you are ashamed of me in a crowd... then you are giving me the measure you want me to use when you come before my father. Can you imagine getting there on judgment day? Come into church all, all your life. Anybody come into church all their life. And, but, but never speaking up for Jesus. And, and you get there on that day. And you come up and you're, you're standing there before God in Christ. And Christ is ashamed of you. Can you imagine? He'll speak up for us, but he expects us to speak up for him as well. Number two, Brother Jenkins says, At his cross, I learn the sinfulness of mankind. And I would add, at his cross, I learn the awful, ugly, hateful sinfulness of mankind. Brother Jenkins says, Think of all the evil that filled the hearts of those evil men whose agenda brought about Jesus' death. Three times, not once, not twice, but three times, Pilate asked those men, What evil has he done? Luke chapter 23 and verse 22. What evil has he done? A third what evil has he done? There is no answer to this question, for he never did even one thing wrong. The Jews could not find any evidence as to why he should die until two false witnesses lied about what he had said about the temple. Why was the mob so angry? Why were they so estranged? Why were they so enraged? Why were the words spoken about Jesus themselves so blasphemous? Here's why. Evil is a reality in our world, and it has never been seen more clearly than at the foot of the cross. Evil is a part of our will. When God allowed mankind to have free will to decide to listen to God or to listen to Satan... Evil is part of our world. It is inescapable. That's why we want to go to heaven, right? Because there's no evil there, right? But evil is a part of this world. 
And never was it more evident than that day at the foot of the cross. You know, I am amazed how often it happens that some person takes it upon themselves to do evil and they do something horrible to somebody else and everybody wants to blame God. Well, if God... No! It's not God's fault. If everybody had been listening to God, this wouldn't have happened. I'm reminded as I say that about the shootings in Florida recently. Open your Bibles with me this morning if you'd like to Romans 3. No, I'm not going to let you go through the whole sermon saying keep your Bible closed. No, 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 no. I'm a gospel preacher. No, no, no. There's a lot of talk about the shootings in Florida. Why did they happen? Because there is no God? No, that's not at all why they happened. They happened because somebody decided to do something that was evil. They chose between doing the good that God wants people to do and doing the evil that Satan wants people to do. That's why it happened. Romans 3 verse 10. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat's an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. Why? What makes people like that? Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. That's the issue. Okay? The problem, not going to go all political on you, but the problem is not guns. The problem is evil. The problem is people who have no fear of God before their eyes and therefore they decide to do evil things to other people. That's the problem. That's what the scripture says. People who do not fear God do not have any respect for the things that God cherishes and holds dear, such as the sanctity of human life. They have no respect for those standards of morality and behavior that almighty and holy and righteous God does. We live in an evil, godless, selfish, sin-filled, and consumed world, 2 Timothy 3. Guess what? We were once part of it ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we were just like them, walking according to our own lusts, according to the word of God, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It was all about us. This is nothing new. Why, why, why do people think this? This is nothing new. It has been this way. There has been evil in the world. It has been this way since man fell and got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It was that way when man arrested God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is going to be evil in this world until the day that God comes back to take us to that paradise in the sky. 
wherever heaven's located. <laughs> Number three. At his cross, and here's the part that ought to bring you to your knees spiritually. If you're still with me, and I hope that you are, I hope that you are still with me at the foot of the cross that morning as Jesus is up there bleeding out, at least in your mind's eye. And all of the holiness and righteousness and purity that Jesus is, is on that cross dying for you. I hope you're still with me. I hope you're still right. I hope you can, I hope you can see the dust. I hope you can see the blood. I hope you can hear the crowd taunting. Number three. At his cross, I learned the truth about my inability to save myself. At the cross, I learn about my inability to save myself. My own goodness could not take away the guilt. Brethren, we've got to, we got to, I know we know it. We need to know it. My own goodness, whatever measure that is, the best person that ever lived, my own goodness cannot take away the guilt of just one sin. Isaiah 64 and 6, all our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. If we are the best person that ever lived and we committed only one sin, all of that goodness cannot erase that one sin. The only hope I have of heaven... The only hope you have of heaven, the only hope anybody's ever had of heaven, is that on that cross, there was one whose sinless life could redeem me. That's what I learned at the foot of the cross. My sinfulness means I owed a debt. And on that cross was the only one who could pay my debt for me. God in the flesh. Period. There was nothing I could do to remove my sin. And so God sent His Son to pay my debt. At the foot of the cross, I feel my own sinfulness and my own weakness as seen in my inability to get rid of my own sin. Please turn to me in your Bibles to Romans 7, where we see this truth reflected. Romans 7, beginning at verse 24, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's just talked about his struggle with sin. Even the great apostle Paul struggled with sin. And in his conclusion here in verse 24, he said, Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I, I have no ability to make this right. I can't fix it. Then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I serve... With the mind, I serve... I'll get this right. 
With the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. None. Zip, zilch, nada. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, I could not obey God enough if I obeyed all of His commandments. Once I committed that first sin, the law, even if I did everything else I was supposed to, could not take away that sin. The law was powerless. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did it for me. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Do you understand Romans 8 and verse 1. Do you understand? Paul has just cried out, I can't fix this. I, I cannot fix my sin problem. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He would write later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Thank God for delivering me from that sin problem. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful verse? And finally, and fourth, at his cross, I learn about God's providential love which surrounds me now. You see, God isn't just going to love you when you get there because you're in Christ. God already loved you. That's why he sent his son. But the thing that, that is being put across here is is that God's love for me right now is even more so than it was when He gave His Son. Brother Jenkins says, Jesus died for me, a mortal worthy of the torment of hell because of my rebellion or sin. Now if God did that much for me when I was His enemy, when I was His enemy, He was willing to send Jesus to die for me. Now that I'm His child... How much more of a relationship, of a love, of an intimate love do God and I share? If God did that much for me when I was His enemy, how much more will He do for me now that I am His child? Meditate on these words. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is incredible. But then he goes on to say, For if we were, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, if when we were enemies God did that for us and brought us to Him, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. God loved me then. But now I'm His child. I'm not an enemy. Now I'm His child. Let me ask you a question. Who's more important to you? Your own children or those who are your enemies? If you love your enemies this much, how much more do you love your own kids? If God loved us that much that He was willing to send Jesus to the cross, everything we read about at the beginning of this lesson, if Jesus loved us that much when we were His enemies, how much more now that we are His children?
Do you understand what you have this morning by standing at the foot of the cross? I learn many powerful truths as I stand at the foot of and survey the wondrous cross of Christ. I experience the reality of what the Lord Jesus meant when he said what he did in John 15. Please turn with me to John 15 before we close. As I stand at the foot of the cross, I experience the reality of these words that Jesus said the very night before he was arrested, lied about, accused, scourged, spat on, and crucified. John 15 and verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Live there. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. It's a two-way street, this relationship. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Brethren, Jesus said the night before he went to the cross, the reason I'm telling you this is so that you will have my joy in you and it will be full. There's evil in the world. Yes, we learn that at the foot of the cross. We learn a lot at the foot of the cross. There's sin in my own life that I can't get rid of. We learn that at the foot of the cross. We learn all of those things that sometimes bring us down at the foot of the cross. But here's the thing. We also should learn at the foot of the cross that Jesus wants us to know and understand what we've got in Christ to the point that we are so full of joy we can't stand it because His joy is able to overcome the world and all of its problems. Is that not true? That's what He said. Then he goes on to tell you what should fuel this joy. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's where our joy comes from. That Jesus was willing to go through all that that we read about at the very beginning of this lesson for you. Yes, I know it's impolite to point. Deal. I'm pointing to me too. My joy, even though there's evil in this world, even though I struggle with sin, even though I struggle on a daily basis with some things, even though there's calamity and problems and issues and evil and all of that stuff, I need to be joyous because I stand at the foot of the cross and understand what Jesus Christ did for me. Greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus commanded 
many things. He knew his disciples were not perfect. He knows we're not perfect. He knew that before he ever saved you. But you know, sometimes those of us who have become Christians, we struggle as the Apostle Paul did with sin. But we need to understand the grace that is in the blood of Christ that he shed on that cross. When we make a mistake, when we sin, it's not intentional. We don't go out and plan to do it, but we just mess up. We need to stand at the foot of the cross. We need to understand what that blood was for. But maybe you're somebody that's here this morning who hasn't obeyed his commandment to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and I hope, if you are, that you'll really read that bulletin article this morning. Don't everybody close your ears on me just because you know I'm getting to that part of the lesson where we get done. Listen, please. One of the commandments that Jesus laid down, first to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, then as he gave what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and in Mark 16 and in Luke 24, and then as Peter laid it out in Acts chapter 2, one of the commandments, we must be born again of the water and the Spirit. Not born of the water physically and then of the Spirit spiritually. That's not what the text says. We must be born of the water and the Spirit or we cannot enter the kingdom. We must obey what he said to do in order to have our sins washed away and take advantage of that blood that was shed there that morning. We do that by being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Now there's another condition there, and it's repentance in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And we're going to talk about that one at length tonight. But we've got to obey that command in order to be saved this morning. If you would obey that command to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you'd like a Bible study on it, if you know what you need to do or you need to, to repent more fully of something because you've already been baptized but you're struggling with a sin in your life the way the Apostle Paul did and you need the prayers of the church, if you have a need this morning, remember, as in your mind you stand at the foot of the cross, what Jesus did for you and he wants to help you now if you'll let him and if you need him to. Please come to the front as we stand and sing.